Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. There are just 57 days left until the inauguration. This will be the inauguration of Joe Biden. Uh, The president did not concede yesterday. He's going to continue pushing his disinformation campaign, but he did, in effect, cave, sort of, sort of. Uh, Michigan was apparently the dagger that uh, forced even uh, Emily Murphy, the GSA administrator, to write an incredibly self-involved and rather graceless letter, but at least it did officially begin the transition. So it was a bad day for for Donald Trump. I mean, even before that, uh, he had suffered dozens of other cuts. I mean, you had more Republicans, not not a huge number, but more Republicans begin to come out of the tall grass and say, yeah, you know, you probably lost. We should move on. More important from his point of view, you had the business community say, hey, uh, it's over, it's done. Uh, A lot of CEOs, including some big donors, told Trump it was time to move on. National security community uh, saying, hey, this is getting a little bit scary. And even some of his media fluffers. um, And then, of course, you had the legal team imploding in this cloud of insanity and recriminations. Uh, leak stories that the president uh, is starting to realize that maybe Rudy Giuliani is not this brilliant galaxy brain lawyer, that maybe this was not, you know, working out. Um, obviously, Sidney Powell already dumped, um, apparently, and Trump was also bothered by Rudy's hair color. This is my favorite quote of the day. Trump was also not pleased with the optics of the brown substance, presumed to be hair dye or makeup product, dripping down Giuliani's face during the nearly two-hour news conference Thursday, according to one of the sources. Now, of course, we have layers and layers and layers of irony there, that uh, Donald Trump would be concerned about somebody else's hair coloring, <laughs> makeup, or whatever. So to discuss all of this, and to take a deep dive into epistemology in the age of Trump, we're joined by Bernie Belvedere who is the editor of Arc Digital. Thanks for joining us, Bernie. Charlie, I'm glad to be here. Now, looking at your your bio, uh, Bernie Belvedere has studied philosophy and theology and is a professor. You have been a professor of philosophy at a variety of schools. You've written on ethics, politics, economics, pop culture, and more than a number of publications. So w- when I said that I want to talk about epistemology, I'm, I'm, I'm really not kidding. I really want to talk about what people know what they want to believe, you know, just sort of breaking this down, you know, the, between the people who just believe total nonsense versus the people who feel they need to say they believe it versus I don't know. Let's break. This. So well, let, let's start with this. Uh, so Sidney Powell, who's a complete lunatic, is out as a, a, a lawyer for the president. But Jenna Ellis, who is just as crazy as she is, really. Is still on, and she actually went on MSNBC last night and said this. The point of all this. <laughs> well, the point of this, of course, is to get to fair and accurate results because the election was stolen and President Trump won by a landslide. And how you're mischaracterizing this, I think that your viewers need to understand the truth of this. So let's not forget that President. The truth of this. So the truth of this, Bernie. Now, I don't know. Does Jenna believe that? The problem is that millions of people do believe it, don't they? Yeah. And one of the things that's so frightening about this sort of epistemic uh, situation that we've found ourselves in is you have two layers of people sort of operating in this space. You have the political class and uh, the people who help them, the people who sort of carry out their interests. And then you have the, the people who support them with their votes, with uh, with their viewership, with their readership. And it's 
unclear whether the political class and all their hangers on really believe all this. And in fact, there may be good evidence to think that they actually don't. And they realize that what they're saying is either a grift or some sort of political maneuver in order to shore up support. But when it comes to the rank and file, when it comes to the salt of the earth, when it comes to the people who uh, comprise the readerships, um, they buy into a lot of this. And that's when it gets sort of scary. So you have someone like Jenna Ellis. We know from her past that she thinks that there are aspects of Trump that are loony. Um, She said as much. We have tweets that show that she thought that he has you know, significant issues with the way that he views the world. All of a sudden, we're supposed to believe that um, she thinks that uh, he, an election with absolutely uh, no no evidence, in fact, it has been stolen from him. Um, Anyone it, it, sort of, it, it sort of beggars belief that all of these people who are in, in sort of Trump's political um, class that are supporting his, his campaign believe that uh, he legitimately won. At the same time, what they're doing is incredibly destructive because, again, there are people out there who are extremely impressionable, who's, who, who, who don't see this as some sort of ploy to just sort of play the politics game. They're really buying into this idea that the, 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 the election was stolen away from Donald Trump. And, of well, course, that, that can have incredible consequences. Well, and this is a problem for them, too. Because they've been feeding them this steady diet, you know, they promised them victory, they promised them, uh, you know, this huge bombshell, they promised to release the Kraken. And instead, yesterday, they they sort of end with this whine and this whimper where they begin the transition. And, and, and you can see online, there are a lot of the folks going, no, we had been told we were going to win this thing, that there was going to be a coup, that the Supreme Court was going to hand us a victory and all of this stuff. So it's hard, you know, once you lit the fire, it's kind of hard to go in and say, yeah, never mind about all of that. It is fascinating, though, to watch the way this has played out, where Trump has lost in one court after another. So, you know, if you watch Newsmax or OAN, you may still think that, you know, that he's got a he's got a shot. But once his lawyers go into a courtroom where their licenses are on the line, and they have to swear to things that the the case just shriveled up. There's no evidence, no standing, no no credibility. So here, here's an illustration of the problem, though. Um, did you happen to hear Laura Ingram yet on Fox News last night? Because I, no, I, I, I didn't I, catch I, it yet. OK, so here's I have a treat for you. So here's Laura Ingram, who has been one of Trump's most aggressive fluffers. And she's in this difficult situation because, you know, they've been feeding all of this stuff to their audience. They know they're being at Fox News. They know that they're being outflanked now by the complete nut jobs over at Newsmax and OAN. And yet they have to, like, let the people know, I'm sorry, I know you tune in to Fox News to be a safe space, but, you know, the president's not winning. Just listen to Laura Ingram. And it's important, I think, to just to listen to how painful this is and how awkward this is for her to tell her audience, yeah, it's over. Donald Trump is not going to be president after January 20th. Let's play that. In what was perhaps the most consequential tweet sent since Election Day, President Trump gave the go-ahead for the transition. You see it there. And as unpleasant and disappointing as these past three weeks have been to so many of us, as much as we wish things were different, this is where things stand tonight. Now, legal challenges continue in a number of states. Serious questions about vote counting, poll watcher access are outstanding. But unless the legal situation changes in a dramatic and, frankly, an unlikely manner, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, 
To say this does not mean I don't think that this election was rife with problems and potential fraud. And to say this does not constitute being a sellout to the conservative populist movement that I've been fighting for for, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, and it does not mean that I disagree at all with the president's right and obligation to pursue all legitimate legal challenges to this outcome. To say this constitutes living in reality. And if I offered you a false reality, if I told you that there was an excellent, phenomenal chance that the Supreme Court was going to step in and deliver a victory to President Trump, I'd be lying to you. Now, you've known me for a long time now, and you've you known me long enough to know that I will not lie to you or simply tell you what you want to hear. But what I will tell you tonight is that even amidst an election loss, there is an enormous amount for us to be hopeful about. Even optimistic. Oh, man. Okay, so, so Bernie, she's, she, she, she's almost pleading. She's apologizing to the audience for telling them something that has been pretty apparent for weeks now. Yeah, and what I find absolutely gobsmacking is in that appeal, she is from one side of, the, one side of her mouth, talking about how she's leveling with her audience, just telling them what, what reality is. At the same time, she continues to parrot this incredible falsehood, uh, just the, the baseless suggestion that there is anything wrong with this election. Democrats and Republican officials alike uh, have come out and said there, there was nothing at all um, remiss with this election. And I, I think what's happened in the last four years. And there are traces of it that um, that predate this era, the Trumpian era. But what's happened in the last four years is pundits following Trump's lead have realized that you can just sort of wildly and baselessly assert things without any sort of recriminations, because you now have the conditions in place for your, your viewership and your readership to be fed exclusively by you, their information yeah. So they are captured. Um, you you are their exclusive channel of information, and there is no penetrating that sort of bubble of information that they trust. So anything that contradicts this um, this set of alternative facts to sort of bookend the administration that was a term that that we first heard from Kellyanne Conway at the beginning of the administration, and it sort of set the framework for the entire four years. Anything that goes against the set of alternative facts or the alternative reality can't get a hearing among Trump's base because they just don't trust the information. They don't consider it reliable. They consider it a ploy or a plot against a president who is trying to do the right thing. And we're in this sort of epistemic quagmire. Um, at the end of the day, this chasm seems sort of unbridgeable. How do you reach people uh, who will... Right will demand zero evidence for any kind of foul play in order to believe something as seismically large as the national presidential election was completely stolen from a candidate. And like they they, now, they're and requiring they, no evidence for that, and they're believing it wholesale. Yeah, well, and they can also now turn the channel. So if they're not hearing on Fox News what they want, they can go to OAN, they can go to Newsmax. And, they, and so the, the window keeps moving toward the crazy, and it becomes harder and harder for reality to chase that down. And, and I, I think we underestimate in some ways the, the success of this war on truth, this war on reality over the last 
of, over the last four years because you could just hear in her voice she was like i'm not selling out i'm not betraying you by telling you a basic fundamental fact i mean it was like five minutes ago that if you won an election by seven million votes if you got 306 electoral votes that they could be unhappy about it but the election was over we didn't have this kind of Sturm und Drang after the 2012 election when Barack Obama was reelected by a smaller margin than this. We didn't we didn't even have this four years ago. Yeah, people were really unhappy about Trump being elected. And, and yes, there was concern about Russian interference, but there was an immediate transition. I think it was the Thursday after the election. He's sitting in the White House in the Oval Office with with Barack Obama. So, I mean, this is really something. And and the fact that that Sidney Powell was was given a forum is is amazing. I mean, this this is actually a marker, I think, Bernie. Um, Matt Lewis has uh, has a piece in The Daily Beast where he sort of goes through all the people that bought her ravings. You know, the the story is Sidney Powell's ravings exposed the rights, morons and zealots, you know. Michael Knowles from, you know, the Daily Wire thought, you know, that her press conference was a must watch. Lou Dobbs uh, introduced her as a member of the legal team, described her as a great American. Mark Levin called her a great patriot. Eric McTaxis, who used to be a serious evangelical Christian writer, right, calls her a hero. And, you know, I mean, Benny Johnson, who's a flack and a hack, you know, says she should be the first female president. So there's a record of the the craziest most bizarre stuff being embraced by f- folks in the right wing media and and i mean this is you know i mean it's one thing for for glenn beck to push it but and rush limbaugh actually sounds really surprised that that it turns out that she had no evidence i mean he he actually sounds like wow i thought this was a big press conference and and they didn't have anything huh it's almost like these guys are scam artists and it's just dawning yeah. on me I mean, it's just remarkable that um, there turned out to be a lack of evidence for Hugo Chavez committing a seance coup um, just years after being in the grave himself. I mean, it that just baffles the mind how that actually didn't pan out as uh, an accurate hypothesis there. Who, who would know? So uh, wh- one of the reasons why Laura Ingram is a little bit nervous is because she knows that Donald Trump may use his platform to turn people against Fox. So this morning, the president of the United States is retweeting Randy Quaid, not making this up, Randy Quaid, who tweeted out, time to make OAN and Newsmax rich, Fox is dead to me. Hey, I think right before we started this, I I read, um, where where is this, Um, a tweet from, the GOP women of Dane County. Now, Dane County is uh, is Madison, Wisconsin. It's a very, very liberal area. But this is the official account of the GOP women of Dane County in Wisconsin. Okay, and and this is not a parody account. I just want, and I, this is an our, our, our theme of 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 epistemology. Like, what do people know? Why do they why do they believe certain things? This is what she tweeted, or they tweeted. I keep going back to what Trump did the day after the election all in caps now. He went golfing, exclamation point. Folks, that's not the behavior of a man who just lost. It's what someone does who doesn't have a care in the world. He knew Dems stole election, all in caps now, and he knew he could prove it, exclamation point. (laughs) So, you know, it's one thing to say there are scam artists and grifters out there and media folks who have to chase the audience and political actors. There are people 
who believe this stuff? I mean, I believe whoever wrote that actually believes that, which makes you wonder how her mind works. Absolutely. Um, it, I think I think it's worthwhile to look at the roots of how we got into this sort of epistemic situation. And I mean, you could go really deep on this and you can also go a little bit more narrow. Uh, just taking a look at the beginning of the Trump era, um, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post uh, evaluating Trump's relationship with the evangelical leadership that was endorsing him. Now, the leadership ran ahead of the people a little bit. There was a time, believe it or not, when evangelicals weren't so gung-ho on Trump. They were first sort of cautious. They were wondering, is this guy the guy who we're supposed to back? Um, He seems to have a life that is in complete contradistinction to what we read about as what a moral leader should look like. Like, what do we do here? Um, And a bunch of leaders came out. People like uh, James Dobson and and other evangelical leaders said, no, no. I mean, you can trust him. Um, In the past, he might have committed some mistakes, but and Dobson actually called him a baby Christian. And the mm-hmm. idea there is that. he is past the threshold of becoming a believer. So you can look, you're going to, he's going to make a couple of mistakes here and there, but you can trust that he's a believer. You can trust he's one of us. Um, he, he's just sort of learning the ropes, but he's a believer. And I remember when Trump was asked about some of this, and it was pretty shocking to me um, the sort of credulousness on the part of some of these evangelical leaders and the people who listen to them, because Trump would say things like they would ask him, uh, do you have anything to ask the Lord for forgiveness about? And he would say flat out, um, no, what, what would I need to ask for forgiveness about? I, I haven't done anything wrong. And what I noticed there was that's sort of a baseline requirement to even be a believer in the first place. I mean, that's not a further step along the Christian trajectory. That's like the entry point. If he's not getting that part where you just have to sort of acknowledge that, hey, I've fallen short. Um, here's this savior who 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 needs to sort of forgive me for this, and I need to I need to acknowledge that I've done something wrong. Like he doesn't get that part, uh, he doesn't get any of it. And yet we were told by these leaders, um, he is in he is in the Christian fold. You can trust that this guy is one of us. And from then on, it was just sort of accepted that he was a defender of Christianity when actually his life and his actual beliefs look completely different. And that set the stage, and that's the theological context. That's at the stage for, in a political context for people to just swallow hook, line, and sinker anything that would be told by leaders. Trump relied on a lot of leaders, a lot of uh, auxiliary personalities who would communicate to the people, Trump's right on this. Trump is l- solid on this. Trump is legit in this sphere. And then they would buy that because that was the channel of information they would they would get their uh, they would get the, those were their sources of information. That's where they would get their beliefs from, and Trump used that to great effect. And because those are their exclusive bubbles of information, there was nothing anything could do to penetrate that and say, "Hang on a sec, this guy isn't as successful as he's being made to look. This guy isn't as committed to Christianity as he's being made to look. This guy isn't as politically savvy as all the eight eight dimensional chess suggestions that are being made about his instincts." It's actually a big mirage. And I think that's getting worse. I, I, th- I think that that, in fact, that was bad. And I think that, that uh, those these alternative reality silos, I think they've gone beyond bubbles. I think they're silos. I think that's getting worse with all of these new voices that are basically now saying Fox isn't sycophantic enough, you know, they, that they really want 
you know, the absolute safe spaces. They, they, they want places that will quite literally defy and deny reality. I think what, what, what exacerbates this problem, Charlie, is um, now the idea of fighting the left, fighting libs, is considered something that um, stokes political uh, act, action, that, that gets out the vote, that produces electoral results. And if you're not doing that, then you're actively inhibiting uh, the country's success. So yep. even, if, even if there are people out there who aren't full-on believers, uh, there was a piece yesterday in Breitbart um, that said Trump is delivering on his promise. He is fighting. So the idea is um, forget about the truth of the matter for a second. Just the fact that he's putting Powell out there, just the fact that he's even even as insane as all this is, just the fact that he's fighting rather than acquiescing to reality is itself a, a, a kept promise. Um, it, it's sort of seen tactically and strategically as a necessary political uh, maneuver these days. And I think that takes us to a very dark place where truth is crowded out by sort of political necessity. And we need some some form of shared acceptance of reality to creep back into things where, where mm -hmm. we say, okay, I lost this one. Uh, maybe I'll win tomorrow. You lost this one. You'll win tomorrow. But there doesn't seem to be any, any willingness on the side of Trump or his, or his most rabid fans to accept a, a shared space like that. Well, and it's interesting that this, this whole, you know, he fights, even if it means he lies or, you know, he throws, you know, crap up against the, the, the wall on the courts. Uh, that really has become the norm so that good sportsmanship and all of these things, you know, become uh, the kinds of things that cucks do. Well, um, speaking of cannibalizing what's going on here, though, uh, down in Georgia, you have some of the MAGA folks who are very, very disappointed about that. And apparently there's there's at least a, a movement um, on some social media in Georgia for Trump supporters to write in his name in the Senate runoffs as opposed to the Republican candidates, Purdue and, and Leffler. And this would be in protest of the rigged vote. Here's my favorite part. Um, GOP dirty trickster Roger Stone, who's out of jail, is is back and he's he's got this super PAC with, with ties to him uh, calling for Trump supporters to punish Republicans by sitting out Georgia's crucial Senate runoffs or writing in Trump's name instead. And though their efforts remain on the party's fringes, the trajectory of the movement has Republicans fearful it could cost the GOP control of the Senate. Now, I have to admit, I have a certain amount of schadenfreude here. <laughs> I mean, they be this dumb. Okay, let's just look ahead to what's going on. At some point, there's going to be kind of a, and just bear with me for a minute, kind of a jarring uh, return to normalcy. Um, I mean, things are going to get bad. I mean, I, I think the transition, we're going to have the, you know, the pardons, we're going to have a lot of uh, uh, more disinformation. But I was really struck by watching the Biden uh, appointments yesterday that they were really, really boring but also startling because I think it's going to be a while to get used to the idea of a government staff by actually, you know, qualified grownups rather than by these misfit toys. I mean, the contrast between the, you know, Tony Knuckles types that was surrounding Donald Trump and the people that, that, uh, that Biden is putting in office. I mean, we've spent the last year being warned about socialism. We have to stop Joe Biden because he's going to bring in socialism. And instead we get Janet Yellen as secretary of the treasury. So, I mean, it, 
the 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 contrast is really going to be dramatic, isn't it, between the way Trump did business and the way Biden's doing business and the kinds of people that he's putting in office? Because amazingly, he's not putting um, cable TV talking head meme, you know, Twitter meme folks into positions of authority. The fact Absolutely. That we, you know, you, you look at someone like Steve Mnuchin, um, Yellen's counterpart. Um, he allegedly defrauded a whole bunch of people. He is from uh, a hedge fund background. Um, he was a point person for Trump in a number of economic related uh, congressional uh, dealings. He would use him quite a bit in a number of different ways on Capitol Hill. And who does Biden turn to for potentially the same sort of role? Uh, someone who's got experience at the Fed, someone who is um, someone the progressives in the party can get behind, but also the moderates can get behind, someone who's got experience all over the place, someone who who isn't uh, in pursuit of headlines, but is rather in pursuit of getting things done. And that's just a microcosm of the sort of change that we're about to see with, with his administration writ large. And, and I'm here for it. We've had four years of just uh, morale destroying news cycles where it, it 150 different avalanches of crazy every every week and i'm really looking forward to competent governing yeah i'd say so uh, the uh, washington post has a newsletter the daily 202 and they talked about the choice for for secretary of state four years ago president-elect donald trump picked exxon mobil ceo rex tillerson to be the secretary of state after meeting him just once just once after running against the washington establishment the only president in American history to take office with no prior governing or military experience picked someone with no prior governing or military experience to be the nation's chief diplomat. It did not go well. In contrast, Biden is choosing Anthony Blinken. Uh, he's named Jake Sullivan as national security advisor. Linda Thomas-Greenfield as ambassador of the United Nations. All of these have extensive experience. He has personal ties to them. The Secretary of State, uh, Blinken, will show up. People will know that he speaks for the president. Rex Tillerson was basically an empty suit. I mean, so again, it's it seems so dramatically different. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things that people forget is uh, one of the reasons Obama picked Biden as his VP choice was because of his foreign policy experience. I mean, yeah. Obama had the sense to recognize that as a senator who hadn't been in the job so long, uh, he needed someone on the most important element in national security and in keeping America safe. He needed someone who knew that world really well. And so he picked Biden. Biden's got all this experience there himself. If there's any incoming president-elect who could get away with putting people in office uh, in, in those positions who, who didn't have extensive uh, experience there, it would be Biden. And yet he's also, he, he's still putting people in there who have extensive experience uh, in, in, in the Obama administration and in past administrations working those same posts. So it's just really impressive what we've seen so far from from the transition team. Yeah, I was thinking about the Jen Yellen appointment that if, if you're sitting around, uh, you know, in Biden world going, OK, who would be the dream appointee for a job like that? Who would be somebody who would be just manifestly qualified, would not blow up the Senate confirmation process? You know, what, what, what would your what would your wish list look like? And, and somebody would say, well, I mean, obviously, Janet Yellen. And and there and and there she is. Okay, so speaking of though Trump, we we all want to go back to normal, 
But uh, you saw this probably uh, this morning as well. Politico has a new uh, poll out showing that Trump is the favored Republican candidate for 2024, beating other notable Republicans by double digit margins. Yes. Do you think he's going to run in 2024? I don't think so. Okay, why? I think there's going to be enough pressure on Trump to not run, to instead play more of a kingmaker role. And he's probably going to, even though his relationship to his children is, is weird in the sense that the affection isn't there that you'd expect uh, a father and, and some of his sons and, to have, um, I think he's going to try to usher forward one of his kids. Um, he's going to try to angle for, for one of them. I think he, the fact that he's term limited is the, is the, is the biggest uh, concern um, for, for advancing Trump as, as the candidate. I know that there have been other candidates who have uh, played the role of good soldier for a while. Um, they're going to pl- apply significant pressure on party elements behind the scenes to try to, um, to try to have Trump play the biggest role he can in a behind the scenes fashion um, without him being the candidate. And I think there's going to be some sort of deal behind the scenes where whoever it is, Trump is going to play a big role uh, in, in as a decide as a decision maker without himself being the candidate. Yeah, I, I, I think the the, pro- the problem is though is that Trump, you know, needs to be the center of attention. He needs to be relevant. He needs not to leave the White House as a loser. So to go out claiming that it was stolen, which he's going to do, he's going to continue that lie forever for the you know all time. Um, but to also suggest that he's going to make a comeback um, will be very attractive to him. Now, whether he means it or not, see, I think he'll at least throw it out there that he's doing it, which will then freeze all the other candidates, make it impossible for them to raise money or form the exploratory committees. He could then basically be a placeholder for one of his kids so that, you know, what he does is he kneecaps everybody else and then he opens the door for for another Trump. But I have to I have to think that a lot of other Republicans are you know, the, the prospect of eight more years of the crazy, and it would be eight years because it would be eight, four years of him being president and waiting. And then if he got elected, it would be four more years. Eight more years has just got to be, even for people in Trump world, has got to be too exhausting. So they have to be hoping that either he loses interest or there are health issues. And I'm just talking about the, the possibilities for a man of his age. Um, or, of course, the question of, you know, what are the financial and legal problems that await him? I mean, that's the big wild card. You know, what what happens when he leaves office? Will he face, um, you know, should we, you know, should we, you know, let bygones be bygones? Or is he going to face uh, legal problems? Um, even if he self-pardons himself or has President Pence pardon him, as people are speculating about, people like Breitbart which is crazy. Um, he's still going to face possible criminal and fraud charges at the state level. So that, that's, that's strikes me as a huge variable. I'm a skeptic that Trump is going to face, uh, legal troubles just because this is not new from him. He's been a corrupt person and he's always been able to skate free from it. Now, um, I know enough about David Hume to know that the past isn't necessarily going to be like the future, um, so it could be different this time around. There's a bigger spotlight on him. He's got more enemies than he has in the past. I think he'll be able to skate on this too. And going back to your earlier point, I think I think what you said is perceptive. I think what he what he'll do is he'll toss a whole bunch of trial balloons out there uh, about running again. Um, if if things don't go my way, uh, who knows? I might enter the field. 
a very good field, but I might enter that, those kinds of messages. Right, and right. that that'll function as a way to put pressure on people to swerve toward his preferred stances on things. Because the the moment he jumps in as uh, a candidate, that's you know the 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 end of anyone else's chances to be able to win. Um, there is no way if Trump jumps in for any other candidate to be able to beat either Biden or Kamala or anyone else uh, who, who will be on the Democratic side. So they will have to placate Trump if he's not the candidate, which means they'll run either Trump in 2024, as, as perhaps you're hinting, or they'll run someone who is so very close to Trump out of necessity, because if not, he's going to blow up the whole operation. I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote that I think Trumpianism has won the 2020 election. Now, I, I love the fact that Biden won, and it's a huge victory. The the sort of um, political energy that was activated to bring out uh, 80 million people who voted Biden was phenomenal. Trump certainly brought out more voters than in 2016, so he there needed to be that kind of energy coming out for, for, for Biden, or it wouldn't have happened. But the situation in the House, the situation likely you know, to happen if, if Roger Stone doesn't get his way in the Senate. Um, and the situation in 2024 with Trump still being a big influence makes me think uh, Trumpism is is unfortunately more durable than a lot of us had hoped. Okay. So, but is there Trumpism without Trump? Let's just theoretically take Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. out of the picture. And you have people who are vying to be the the successor. You have the Ted Cruz's, the Tom Cotton's, all of you know, Nikki Haley's are out there. You know, are, are they able to latch on and become the heirs of Trumpism? Or is Trumpism something specific to this guy, this personality and non-transferable? That's a great question. There's a lot of debate on the right about whether there is even such a thing as Trumpism. Mm-hmm. I think those debates are great. Uh, because it gets to the core of what we mean when when we talk about Trump and we'll, when we try to separate uh, Trumpism from the person Trump himself, I think there are a lot of overlapping ways we can characterize sort of the Trumpian id. Um, w- one of the ways to capture when you when you look back at the, in the at the last four years, one way to characterize Trumpism or at least the dominant sensibility that Trump has embodied in office is owning the libs. If that's how we characterize it, then absolutely Ted Cruz can embody that, even with Trump gone. Absolutely. Well, he's, he's going for that performative jerkitude. I mean, he's he, absolutely. He, he's clearly moving into the, I have the most obnoxious, uh, irresponsible Twitter. Twitter. Game you can right see there. a trajectory in Ted Cruz's public uh, life in which he goes from being someone who wants to oppose legislation and talk about constitutional uh you know, uh, defense to then just trolling people and like coming out with some meme that gets a whole bunch of retweets. He's made that shift to owning the libs. If that's how we understand Trumpism as a sensibility, then I think that can persist beyond Trump. And what it'll look like is probably, probably fewer instances of just unhinged tweets, but you'll still see the sort of professionalized trolling and memeing and not ceding a single inch to the opposition, refusing to apologize under any circumstances, um, preferring the theater of optics rather than the, um, the work of substance and, and, and legislation and governing. 
Uh, all of that is a sensibility, and Trump has embodied that. I think Trumpism, the word, has Trump in it, so it's easy to say without Trump, you don't have Trumpism, but there's a whole lot that he's brought to the table and sort of steered the party toward, a kind of sensibility, a kind of aesthetic that seems to be latching on in a deeper way than just the person himself there. This is an excellent point you're making because there are some people who think that the future of Trumpism is about the issues. It is about, you know, America first or trade policy or everything. And I think you're exactly right, though. It's not. It's not about those things. It is about this sensibility. It is about this personality. It is about that swagger, which is why I'm very, very skeptical that, say, a Tom Cotton or a Josh Hawley would be able to take that mantle because they're just boring. I mean, they just, they, they're wonks. They just can't pull it off. You just watch them and think, no. Cruz, who's basically been a prick forever. I mean, look, I mean, he's got the performative assholery down. So he, he could just simply sort of, you know, rework it into a more Trumpian personality. Um, but, you know, we'll, you know, we're obviously going to see here. Let me just say where, where I want to push back on something you said earlier. I, I guess I am less skeptical than you are about the possibility that Trump may face legal problems. And you know, for, for a lot of the same reasons that, you know, you were saying that you didn't, you thought he would skate. He has been corrupt forever and he's gotten away with it forever, but he's also been corrupt forever, which means he has, uh, he has been cutting corners forever. He has been lying forever and he's never really been, you know, nailed down on it. But a guy that lies this much, who has, you know, obviously who, uh, you know, w wants to fly so close to the the edge uh, is going to cross that. And if you get an aggressive prosecutor, you know, what does it take to find, you know, what that one lie, that one perjury, you know, during the Mueller investigation, I think one of the smart things that that uh, Trump's lawyers did was do not go under oath with with Mueller. I think one of the big mistakes Mueller made was not getting him under oath because the guy cannot help but lie. So I think that he's in a more dangerous position. He's more exposed. He's a much bigger target. Uh, there's much more incentive to go after him. You know, if. If back in the day, a Preet Bharara had aggressively gone after Donald Trump, you don't think that he would have found like a mountain load of shit that he could have indicted him for? Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. I also think, though, that um, there's this sense that once an administration has been felled, um, it's sort of in bad taste to go after them. Now, I know I say that, and yet at rallies to this day, we still hear chants of lock her up, um, referring to Hillary Clinton, which is insane. but um, so Gerald Ford uh, just right. sort of uh, put a lid on going after Nixon. We had Obama that that did not want to spend any political capital going after uh, Bush people. I don't know that it would be very well received to aggressively go after him legally when the the humiliation of the loss is already enough for people yeah. to consider him a failure. I'm 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 there for it because. Um, He's obviously, because his superpower is shamelessness, he feels no humiliation. He feels no shame. And I think the way that he's going to handle this transition for anybody that was tempted to think, hey, let's just let it go. Uh, the fact that he's going to be as obnoxious and, and dangerous as possible, do as much damage to democracy as possible, and will still be a political force going forward, as we've just been discussing, I think raises the stakes on not letting him be above the law. And I guess that's the other principle is that, you know, had he not been the president of the United States, I think he would have been indicted. 
uh, over the last four years. He would have faced criminal charges. And uh, but because he was the president, he was immune from that. But once he's no longer president, he's no longer above the law. And that's a that's a principle that I think is worth upholding, that no one is so rich or so powerful or so prominent uh, or so obnoxious that they are above the law. And the only way to really demonstrate that is to make sure that he's held accountable for some of this. So I guess I'm, you know, I, I like the Joe Biden, you know, let's all get along, kumbaya, and move ahead. But I'm hoping that there's a different sensibility among the state prosecutors, because quite frankly, um, I don't think that Donald Trump will have learned his lesson. And I, and I do think that there's a principle that needs to be vindicated. So that, that's a that's a fair point. And it makes a lot of sense when you talk about um, in the context of uh, putting legal pressure on Trump's, especially when he is considering continuing to be a massive presence in our politics, this would actually be a way to sort of discourage him from continuing to be a presence there. There would be party elements on his own side who would try to tamp down his influence if he becomes sort of a legal liability in that sense. So for, for that reason alone, I think I, you're on, um, you're, you're suggesting something um, important there. I wonder, going back to another point, sort of linking the two together, where you said Tom Cotton or Holly, they wouldn't be able to galvanize a crowd at a rally. I think I think you're absolutely right there where there's no way that those people can command a stage the way that Trump can. Trump's got this sort of charisma, this reality TV presence that they can't capture their wonks. I, I wonder if the way that the right wing media infrastructure works today, where it's got sufficient number of personalities who could step in and play that role as a kind of proxy where you flash Bongino at people or <laughs> you, you bring out Gorka and they can be the sort of hype men. They can be the people who, who stir up the crazies and you don't need um, Cotton necessarily to be the main attraction. He just sort of has to be the figurehead. And when you've got something like that going on, do you, do you possibly risk losing the midterms or even losing the next presidential election because you aggressively went after Trump legally and right. people see it as overreach based on the propagandizing that people like Gorka and all the rest do to something like that? Or do you let it go as no. a pragmatic point? Right. And I do think there's a pragmatic case and there's a very strong pragmatic case against doing all of this. So I was just flashing to your or Orwellian dystopian vision of the future. <laughs> where it's like, you know, forever, a, you know, the boot of Seb Gorka and Don Bongino, you know, stomping on our face forever. Oh, God. <laughs> or being in our face forever would be would be enough. So tell me a little bit about Arc Digital uh, for, for our listeners, because, you know, you're part of this whole world of the of the uh, dissemination of, I mean, dissemination, I, I want to say just the, the multiplication of, I think, really interesting online sites um, outside of, you know, the, the big established magazines, the bulwark, of course, is one of them. Uh, we have our, you know, friends over at the dispatch, uh, you guys over arc digital have been doing just fascinatingly interesting stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting time to be doing this. I mean, it's an interesting time to be in the media and being in the business of, of, of ideas, isn't it? It really is. Now, we debuted just a couple months before Trump was elected president. And we had expected, we even wrote a piece ex um, expecting Hillary to be you know, elected president. And it didn't happen that way. Uh, it didn't really change the way that we conceived of our project. That wasn't the thing that sort of changed what we were doing. We initially had set out to be primarily a center-right space. 
with also giving some room for dissenting voices, people from the left to also publish with us, we then shifted to, and we realized that our true sort of nature, the thing that we really wanted to do in media was a pluralist publication, a publication that functions as a kind of intellectual roundtable where we, we, we hold a seat out for people who are socialists on one side or libertarians on the other or center rightists or center leftists or even centrists. We just hold a seat out and we ask these people to come with their best argument for a position and we, and we publish those and we, and, and we edit them so that they fit the mold of an ongoing conversation about these issues. And we find that that serves our readers well, where you get the perspectives from people in this sort of shared discourse. And at the end of the day, hopefully the people who read us are enriched by what they're reading. And they may, they may not ultimately buy a, an argument from someone from the other side, but at least they learn something about their perspective. We think that that's something that can really help the the public discourse, the uh, the online information ecosystem. Um, I guess if you were to divide the the world of journalism from it, if you were to make a binary between news and opinion, we're more on the opinion side. Although it's hard to know where to place analysis. Analysis is sort of in the middle. We also do analysis. We don't do as much reporting. Maybe one day we'll branch into that. So we do a lot of analysis and opinion. We're committed to a sort of panoramic. Um, set of views. And we have this sort of core centri centrism where myself and Nicholas Grossman are sort of in the center left to center right range on our positions. And we're excited about the future. We've got a podcast coming out, Grossman and I, uh, where it's the it's going to be the main flagship podcast for our, for our site, the ArcCast. Um, got to have you on there, Charlie. Would love um, well, we've had you on the podcast. We've had Nicholas Grossman on the podcast. We've had Kathy Young on the podcast. Uh, she's, you know, she's somebody that writes for the Bulwark and for Arc Digital. So there's Kathy's there's, great. There's a lot of cross pollination that goes on here. Yeah, you guys are you guys are friends of the publication. Um, you guys, the Dispatch. Um, I, I think there can be a sort of reclaiming of intelligent center right and center. Um, thinking um, in, in in the sort of commentary space online, and what it takes is uh, what it takes is a commitment to um, commitment to not viewing someone who you have disagreements with as being completely uninteresting to listen to. And the reason I say that is because there's got to be buy-in from people on the left, from people on the center left, from people who want to see a conservatism that is responsive to reality, to is uh, the, the, a conservatism that is vulnerable to the facts. And if this is something that is important to people on the left side of the spectrum, then I encourage them to look for outlets like Bulwark and the Dispatch and others and say, I'm, I'm going to back you because the alternative is Breitbart. The alternative is these misinformation um, hothouses where it's just degrading our culture. Bernie Belvedere, thank you so much for joining us and being so generous with your time on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.